The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Tonight on The Readout. Look, I, I think it's highly unlikely that Donald Trump's ever read High Mein Kampf. Yeah, he says something outlandish. They attack what he said rhetorically. But if you come back to the root of the issue, it's where a lot of the American people agree with him on. Remember how Trump's first wife said he kept a book of Hitler speeches by his bedside? Now, Trump is echoing Nazi rhetoric as part of his stump speech. And as usual, Republican politicians are coming to his defense. Also tonight, new reporting on Justice Clarence Thomas and his quest to live like the Joneses while serving on the court, which could go a long way to explain why he allowed his wealthy friends to give him such lavish, lavish gifts. And fresh off their $148 million court victory over Rudy Giuliani, the women he defamed, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, are now filing a new lawsuit against Rudy. But we begin tonight with the phrase, poisoning the blood of our country. If it sounds like Nazi talk, it's because it is. In chapter 11 of Adolf Hitler's fascist manifesto, Mein Kampf, he writes, all great cultures of the past perished only because the originally creative race died out from blood poisoning. That little turn of phrase has since been parroted by other autocrats like the far-right leader of Hungary, Viktor Orban, who has described largely Muslim, Middle Eastern, and North African asylum seekers in Europe as a poison. This is the same guy who said he opposes immigration because it leads to, quote, mixed-race Europeans. And now the phrase is being repeated by the leading Republican candidate for president here in the U.S., Donald Trump, who had a rally this weekend when he wasn't quoting Vladimir Putin, praising the aforementioned Orban, or describing insurrectionists charged with violent crimes in the January 6th Capitol attack as hostages, had this to say about immigrants. They let, I think the real number is 15, 16 million people into our country. When they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and Prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world, they're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. This is, of course, not the first time Trump has used this phrase. He also said it back in September. Nobody has any idea where these people are coming from. And we know they come from prisons. We know they come from mental institutions, insane asylums. We know they're terrorists. Nobody has ever seen anything like we're witnessing right now. It is a very sad thing for our country. Uh, it's poisoning the blood of our country. Now, if you think that it's just a coincidence and Donald Trump couldn't possibly have known he used a line straight out of Hitler's book. Recall that according to his first wife, Trump kept a book of Hitler's speeches in a cabinet beside his bed. Not to mention, in the book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election by journalist Michael Bender, Trump reportedly praised the Nazi leader, telling then White House Chief of Staff John Kelly during a 2018 visit to Europe, well, Hitler did a lot of good things. 
And before you dismiss all of that as just more, that's just Trump shenanigans, remember that this kind of rhetoric about immigrants is also very similar to what's, to some of what we've seen in manifestos written by mass shooters. Last year, the shooter who killed 10 African Americans at a Buffalo supermarket wrote a manifesto laying out specific plans to attack black people and repeatedly cited the great replacement theory. The false idea pushed by people like Tucker Carlson that a Jewish cabal is attempting to replace white Americans with non-white folks through immigration, interracial marriage, and eventually violence. In 2019, the gunman who killed 23 people at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, posted a manifesto that spoke of a Hispanic invasion of Texas, as well as a plan to separate America into territories by race and warned that white people were being replaced by foreigners. Now, I know that you are all probably exhausted from talking about the crazy things Trump says, whether it be cruel or racist or just plain stupid, and as of late, increasingly authoritarian. But what we cannot do is let this become normal. We cannot look away from this because two weeks from today, it will be 2024. Less than one month from today is the first nominating contest in the presidential primary, a race that Trump is leading at the moment by a huge margin. And less than a year from now, there is a very real chance that this man becomes the next president and ends democracy as we know it. But perhaps the even scarier part is that the people around him will let it happen. He's already promised to surround himself with sycophants like Steve Bannon, Cash Patel, and Stephen Miller, who are ready and willing to enable his worst impulses. And the rest of the Republican Party will fall in line behind him. Don't believe me? Take a listen to some of the responses on the right to his Hitlerian speech. They wanted to focus all the Sunday shows, Lawrence, on the word he used, poison. He was just trying to say, we want to keep America, America. We want to build up the border and find out who's coming in and out. You have endorsed former President Trump. Are yeah. you comfortable with him using words like that? You know, we're talking about language. I could care less what language people use as long as we get it right. You well know I'm, a, I'm from East Tennessee and we don't usually talk like that. And he's from New York and that's the way folks, he, he's Trump being Trump. Joining me now is Jelani Cobb, staff writer for The New Yorker and dean of Columbia University School of Journalism. David K. Johnston, author of The Big Cheat and founder of DCReport.org. And Tom Nichols, staff writer for The Atlantic. I am going to start with you, Jelani. I always like to say it's good to have a historian around. You are a good one and also the head of a, of a very important journalism school. You also live in New York. I think you and I, I'm, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, can confirm that, no, that is not the way New Yorkers talk. New Yorkers just don't cite Hitlerian speech casually, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, not, that's about as common in New York as the so-called locker room talk uh, from, uh, you know, the, the video we heard before. Uh, I've never yeah. heard anybody talk like, use those words in a locker room. I've never heard anyone in New York uh, use those words uh, referring to immigrants. Uh, it, it's a very kind of... Uh, dystopian rhetoric, uh, a worldview that is probably more akin to uh, screenplay writers uh, than it is typically to uh, sober-minded yeah. political figures. And I, I do want to add one thing here, which is, journalistically speaking, I covered the Tree of Life shooting. I was there. I went to Pittsburgh to cover it. Uh, I wrote about the Tops shooting uh, in Buffalo. 
And I wrote about the the uh, El Paso Walmart shooting where 23 people were killed. And in each of those instances, it was that same sort of rhetoric. Uh, and this is no kind of you know, partisan dig at a particular person. Anyone who weaponized, who looks at the kind of weaponized rhetoric that we saw uh, in those manifestos would see that people, uh, that there's a very clear parallel uh, between that kind of language and those kinds of actions. And just to, just, just to stay with you for just one moment, because the history of journalism in this country, including the New York Times and others, I have the big screenshots sure. of it, is that in the 1930s, when Hitler himself was making these kinds of claims and saying these things and praising Henry Ford, who Donald Trump has also repeatedly praised for having sure. great bloodlines. He's praised mm-hmm. him and, and Hitler praised Henry Ford and Trump has as well. The media largely ignored it and brushed it off as light talk, not important, not dispositive of anything. No. And that was a mistake, was it not? Oh, yeah. We, we have uh, a very long tradition of rounding the absurd down into normalcy or near normalcy. Uh, or euphemizing, uh, you know, the most dangerous uh, things that we see in front of us, uh, because we are not, uh, you know, we're congenitally opposed to sensationalism, at least the serious media is. Uh, but what that often does is leave you uh, ill-equipped to report on things that are in their own right alarming and sensational. Uh, and so uh, that's the kind of thing where we've seen, you know, I think we, we've gone through racially charged and all the other various <laughs> euphemisms that we, we've heard uh, along those lines. Uh, but that is absolutely true. And, it's, and it remains a kind of danger as we think about how we're going to cover the events leading into next year's election. Yeah. And, and Tom Nichols, it, it also is dangerous because there is a, an unwillingness to see the parallels. Victor Orban People like Vladimir Putin, we now have Malay and Argentina. I could go on. There are a number of these autocrats who say some of the same things. We're going to unleash the police to fight drug dealers, shoot them in the street to provoke violence. But this particular piece, this idea of immigrants poisoning the blood of the nation is always about non-white immigrants supposedly poisoning white people and essentially the fear of intermixing, which Viktor Orban has been very overt and, and, and blatant about. What do you make of the fact that Republicans in this country refuse to see the parallels when Donald Trump says it? They don't refuse to see the parallels. They refuse to admit the parallels. They see the parallel. They know exactly what's happening. The idea that they are in denial, um, you know, the, the clips you showed, you know, people like Lindsey Graham, they're not. They don't, it's not that they can't see it. It's that they prefer to stay in power. They want to win. They are basically now a minority rule party, and they're determined to stay there. And so they have to explain it away. Um, and it may well be that Trump, um, you know, has never um, read. I mean, I the first time I heard Vermin, I said, you know, there's no way Donald Trump can come up with his vocabulary is so limited. Um, but that's even scarier because it says that the people around him are not just enabling him. We keep using those terms. They are actively um, arming him um, with words like this. They are actively working on these plans. It's not like he's saying things and they're saying, well, boy, we're really, you know, it's, it's, I'm sorry the boss wants to go in that direction, but I guess I'll have to write that speech now. I think it's the other way around. They know exactly what he wants to do and they're making him better at it. They, they learned their lessons from the last time around. And this time they're going to make sure that he's a lot more focused and a lot more um, intent on getting things done 
right on to use his term right on day one. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let's 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 talk that. Let's talk Trump, uh, David K. Johnson. You've known this man for twenty five some odd years and covered him. Donald Trump seems to me, I mean, just my sort of cursory history of him when I was writing my my book on him, is that he is obsessed with blood purity. He is obsessed with genes and his good genes. These are the things that he says all the time. It's just that people didn't attach any nefarious intent to it. Not sure why. But is he as obsessed with blood poisoning and blood and uh, genes and good genes and all of that as I think he is? Oh, absolutely. You absolutely have nailed it right there. Uh, What should trouble us the most, Joy, is how many millions of people buy into this nonsense that if you have pink skin like me, somehow you're better. What a silly, ridiculous notion. And we really, I think, are missing, and and my colleagues in the news business are missing, that we have a significant segment of the American public that wants white nationalist racism. Who I, I've literally had people call me on the phone and tell me what we need to do is bring back slavery. And this, this is not being covered the way I think it should be to really lay this bare. And related to that are all of the jello-spined Republicans who will not stand up to this man. More than a million people died for this country. I am, under the law, a war orphan because of World War II and the Nazis. And to see a politician more concerned about holding on to his office than the welfare of this country, we should be shaming these people, shaming them for being cowards, for not doing what they know is right. You know, it wasn't long ago before Republicans would shame them for it. Let me let me remind you all of Steve King. Y'all remember Steve King? Uh, he was an Ohio um, Republican who got kind of ran out Iowa. of town Iowa. for uh, Iowa. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I apologize. Ohio, Iowa Republican who got ran out of town, ran out of Dodge for saying things like this. Here is Steve King. And this was at the 2016 convention, the convention that nominated Donald Trump to be president. This history and figure out where are these contributions that have been made by these other categories of people that you're talking about, if, that what, where did any other subgroup of people contribute more to civilization? Than white people? Than, than Western civilization itself that's rooted in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the United States of America, and every place where the footprint of Christianity... Tom, he also asked, when did this phrase white nationalism get such a bad rap? He's now campaigning with Vivek Ramaswamy. Quite ironic, but he is. Yeah, you know, gosh, um, a couple of civil wars and a couple of world wars um, and a few genocides and suddenly racial superiority gets a bad reputation. Um, Imagine. (laughs) Um, I think, again, you know, it's not that they don't know what they're saying. Um, it's not that they mean something different by it. There are a lot of the language that's coming out of Trump now, I think, it, it has been um, put there, not just by him, but by the people who work for him, as a flag now to the base, as, as, a, as a flare, as a bat signal to the base to say, don't, don't worry about any of the kind of backpedaling we might have to do. Um, once we get to the general election, we're totally with you. This is our, you know, we're, we've got your back. And I think um, the particularly tragic part of this, you know, as, as David pointed out, that millions of people are, are buying into this. But, to, but for Republicans to keep on this, harping on this ridiculous notion of, well, you know, it's just the way he talks, 
Tim Burchett, you know, what's happened in the New York talk business. You could probably make that argument in 2015, 2016, as people did. He's just acting. It'll be different when he's in office. Even by 2018, 2019, he won't try and stay in office. He would never support a coup. Here we are in 2023. How many times does Donald Trump have to simply say it out loud um, before, you know, people? Yeah. And I think David's point about the media is especially well taken, where people say, you know, he's not joking. He's not kidding around. This is exactly what he wants. And it's also exactly what millions of his voters want. And David and K. Johnson, I, I mean, just people didn't believe it that. when his. Yeah. And well, David, people dismissed it when his dad got arrested at a Klan rally. So. Yes. And even though we have solid evidence beyond any doubt of that um, published at the time, it, we, we really need to focus on people who don't know the stories, which is not people watching the show, but people they know, because I think many people close themselves out. They watch news organizations or don't watch at all where they're not hearing what's going on here. And the baseline should be it is never appropriate for any candidate who's for president of the United States to propose that we lock people up without trial that we shoot people if we want to, as in the Fifth Avenue statement, we do other things that are against our constitution. And as Trump said, suspend our constitution. We really need to work on making that totally socially unacceptable. And then why why is the media not doing that, Jelani? Because I don't see every single Republican walking out of the United States Senate and House building being asked, do you support uh, the idea that immigrants are poisoning the blood of the country? Every Republican ought to be asked that, not just when they're on Meet the Press. What is the media? Why does the media still seem so timid to just confront this? A lot of the media so timid to confront it. Sure. I mean, I think there's there's you know variations in, in different forms of the media and different kinds. But overall, uh, we've we've presumed a couple of things. Uh, one is that uh, the the normalcy, the normalization thing that, that I talked about uh, previously. We've also presumed a certain degree of uh, infallibility of American democracy or, or impregnability of American democracy, and so uh, the alarms. And I've, I've had these conversations publicly and privately, uh, and with you know various people in leadership of you know American media. The alarms don't ring as loudly. Uh, in the ears of our media establishment as they should. Uh, and so, you know, another thing that I think is important is that we should look at not how alarmed our media is, but how alarmed the media in countries that actually have experience with authoritarians is. Yeah. Uh, because they understand exactly where this rhetoric can go, what the implications of it are. And, you know, when I talk with, you know, my colleague Maria Ressa, uh, you know, the Nobel laureate, uh, you know, from yeah. the Philippines, uh, and she's the, extremely alarmed about these things because she sees the parallels. Uh, and there are media Duterte. people around the world who understand this. Absolutely. It can happen. It can happen here, too, everyone. Uh, Jelani Cobb, David K. Johnston, Tom Nichols, thank you very much. Up next on The Readout, new reporting sheds light on what turns out to be Clarence Thomas's lifelong obsession with making stacks of cash. One of the reporters on that story joins me next. The Readout continues after this. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. 
Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Leonard Leo has worked diligently to craft a Supreme Court of his dreams, and his work and investment has paid off. Leo is the beating heart of conservative jurisprudence. It was Leonard Leo who recommended that Trump nominate Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Before that, he helped pick or confirm Clarence Thomas, John Roberts, and Samuel Alito. He is close with both Justices Thomas and Alito. Thomas is a godfather to one of Leo's daughters. These relationships seem innocent enough until you remember Leo's goal is to undermine legal progressive victories, which can only happen with their compliance. In trying to achieve that goal, Leo has cultivated a coterie of wealthy donors like Paul Singer, Texas billionaire Harlan Crow, and the Koch family. Familiar names that we'll, I will come back to in a brief moment. But first, back in 2020, Thomas would openly complain about how civil servants, which he had been most of his professional life, don't make much money. The job is not worth doing for what they pay. It's not worth doing for the grief, but it is worth doing for the principle. Today, ProPublica is reporting that those complaints were far more serious, so serious that Justice Thomas reportedly said if Congress didn't give justices a raise, that one or more justices will leave soon. This is according to records from the time of, from the from the from the from uh, the, I'm sorry for records obtained by ProPublica, including a confidential memo to then Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Thomas made that complaint to Florida, Florida Congressman Cliff Stearns, a vocal conservative who told ProPublica that Thomas's importance as a conservative was paramount and that Republicans wanted to make sure he felt comfortable in his job and he was being paid properly. You would also understand how Thomas's complaints might trigger the same level of concern with Leonard Leo, who invested so much in these people and the outcomes they could deliver. Congress never changed the law. But a couple of years after those comments, Thomas struck up a lucrative friendship with Texas billionaire Harlan Crow, a friend of Leo's. This helped Thomas pay for his mother's house, luxury vacations, and tuition for a grandnephew. Later in 2012, Leo also directed thousands of dollars in fees to the justice's wife, who needs a raise with friends like these. Joining me now is the co-author of that report, published today in ProPublica, Brett Murphy. Uh, Mr. Murphy, thank you so much for being here. This was a fascinating report that actually kind of answers a question that I think a lot of people have had. You know, um, what is kind of the motivation, the underlying motivation for Clarence Thomas, you know, blatantly and flagrantly violating what seemed like ethics rules? Talk a little bit about Clarence Thomas's complaints. And these date back to the year 2000, when he had only been on the court for eight years. That's right. Yeah. So this was in 2000. Um, Justice Thomas was on his way back from a conservative conference. On the plane ride back, uh, he was talking with Cliff Stearns. And he told Stearns that if there's not a pay raise for justices, uh, multiple justices might soon resign. 
this uh, Stearns took to mean, uh, as Justice Thomas, might be one of the resignations. So when Stearns got back to Washington, he set off sort of a flurry of activity there uh, where, he, where he wanted to raise this. He wanted to raise it on uh, the House floor. Uh, he wanted to introduce a bill. Thomas had also at the same time been raising concerns about the lack of um, speaking fees that justices could take. So he wanted that addressed as well. Um, there was a bill introduced to that effect. So this this period of time is very important because uh, there was some financial strain in his life at the time. He had just taken on uh, a nephew and uh, he was sending him to private school. And it was around the same time, as you mentioned, Joy, where these relationships with these benefactors were budding. Um, so this this is important context to some of our other reporting all year because a stream of gifts, including tuition, uh, followed uh, this moment in 2000. So let me play very quick, just to put a pin in that for a moment. Let me play a little thing from PBS Frontline that did this great documentary on Clarence and Jenny Thomas. And it talked about his motivations for going to Yale Law School. Take a listen. Clarence Thomas wasn't getting the offers he expected from prestigious law firms. He was saying that he wasn't getting the kind of offers that other students were getting. Um, and, um, and we couldn't understand it. We thought that, well, you know, you're at Yale, and if you're not getting offers, something, something's wrong, you know, because that's the whole purpose of going to those schools. So now let me read some of your ProPublica reporting about Leonard Leo uh, and George Conway, a Federalist Society guy, saying it was Leonard Leo's job to keep the justices happy and keep them on the court. Quote, there was always a concern that Tom, that Antonin Scalia, who was also not a rich guy, or Clarence Thomas would say, F it, and quit the job and go make way more money at Jones Day or somewhere else, Conway said, referring to the powerful conservative law firm. Part of what Leonard does is he tries to keep them happy so they stay on the job. It, it, does that confer, confirm with your newest reporting that essentially people like Scalia and people like Thomas and maybe people like Alito weren't in lucrative law jobs that they thought maybe they'd be in when they went to law school and their job was to make them feel rich so that they would stay on the court and vote the way they wanted them to. Yeah, Leo's sentiment there underlines exactly what um, Cliff Stearns was saying at the time, was that this was a concern for people like him because they appreciated Thomas's reading of the Constitution and they wanted him to be comfortable. Um, on the bench, so much so that he wouldn't think about resigning. And it's worth noting that uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Scalia did not come from money. They were not independently wealthy like several of the other justices. Thomas had worked in government uh, his whole career. And in the private sector, uh, you know, lawyers can make much more money. And this sort of specter was hanging over Washington a lot at the time. Justice pay, uh, federal judge pay had stagnated. For years, people have pointed out that this is a hot-button concern for a long time, really since 89. Uh, so this was front of mind to a lot of folks who were worried about resignations. Absolutely. Take a thirsty man, match him with your rich friends, and voila, you get the court that you want. Brett Murphy, great reporting. Congratulations. Uh, very important stuff. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joy. And still ahead, cheers. Rudy Giuliani has been ordered to pay $148 million to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And now their attorneys are doing everything in their power to make sure that that happens. We'll be right back. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Fresh off last week's jury verdict that Rudy Giuliani paid nearly $150 million in damages to the two former Georgia election workers he falsely accused of election fraud, Giuliani now faces a new complaint filed against him. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are now seeking an injunction, barring Giuliani from repeating his false claims against them, something they say he has continued to do even while the trial was underway last week. The complaint reads... Defendant Giuliani's statements, coupled with his refusal to agree to refrain from continuing to make such statements, make clear that he intends to persist in his campaign of targeted defamation and harassment. It must stop. Joining me now is Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst and host of the Justice Matters podcast. Um, Glenn, my friend, let me play some of the uh, alleged defamation. Here is Rudy Giuliani repeating his claims about Ruby, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss during the trial last week. When I testify, you'll get the whole story, and it will be definitively clear that what I said was true, and that whatever happened to them, which is, it's unfortunate if other people overreacted, but everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to Ruby? Of course I don't regret. I told the truth. I have no doubt that my comments were made and they were supportable and are supportable today. I just did not have an opportunity to present the evidence that we offered. If the injunction is granted and he did that again, what would happen? You know, hopefully at some point, Joy, some court, some judge, somewhere will actually hold these folks accountable for just thumbing their nose at the law, for continuing to endanger witnesses. And and we should talk about the intersection of what's going on in that courtroom in Washington, D.C., in Rudy's defamation case, as it dovetails with Rudy's pretrial release in the Georgia Rico case in which he is a charged defendant. But at some point, ultimately, a judge will have to hold Rudy in contempt. If an injunction is put in place and he continues to violate it, he should be held in contempt and the penalties can include up to jailing him. You know, the litigants in this case, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, who just won a, you know, nearly $150 million judgment, shouldn't have to go back to the court seeking an injunction to say, please, judge, get him to stop lying defaming and endangering our lives because Rudy is on specific um, notice right now, courtesy of that jury's judgment, that he was lying, he was defaming, and he was endangering these election workers. Yeah. And and, uh, intersection, you say? Here's Rudy on Saturday making an even more bizarre claim. Even the discovery, I was being discovered for other cases 
because these people are working for the Bidens, not for the not for the not for the women. They were asking me questions that had to do with Trump's liability, other people's liability. Basically, they wanted me to rat. You know, that, that's uh, what's going on. They offered me settlements and I told them to go to hell. This was a really stalking action uh, for Biden. Glenn, at this point, is this man faking mental incompetency to try to wriggle out of this? And I, and I, of this? And I ask that because this is a former U.S. attorney. This was not like a, a, a nobody lawyer. This was a top U.S. attorney in the United States who is now acting like he doesn't understand the law and lying and claiming that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's lawyers are working for Joe Biden. He was asked, Moss and Freeman's lawyers asked, say they asked Giuliani to enter into an agreement to stop publishing in these similar false claims about them. He refused to do it. This guy is not somebody who doesn't know the law. Is he faking mental incompetency thinking it'll get him out of this judgment? In your view, I don't think he's I don't think he's feigning incompetence and, and incompetence to stand trial is a very high bar. I've litigated those cases. But, you know, here here is the part where we're talking about the intersection. You know, he is on release in the Georgia case. I have his release conditions right here. Enjoy. Number five is that the defendant, Giuliani, shall perform no act to intimidate any person known to him to be a co-defendant or witness in the case or to otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. What is he doing? After that jury award in D.C., he's intimidating and endangering the lives of the witnesses in the Georgia case, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. They will almost certainly testify in Georgia. You know, when Harrison Floyd, another defendant down in Georgia, um, was alleged to have intimidated witnesses, he found himself on the receiving end on a motion to revoke him on release and jail him pending trial. A hearing was held and Judge McAfee found that he probably technically violated a condition of release. But Judge McAfee opted not to order him into pretrial detention. How about Rudy? It feels like Rudy should now be up because it sure looks like he's violating the conditions of his release in the Georgia case by continuing to intimidate, lie about the fame and endanger Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. I, I will note for our audience uh, that Giuliani, uh, it's an intentional tort, and therefore, just for the audience's knowledge, he can't get out of it using bankruptcy. Somebody ask OJ. Glenn Kirshner, thank you very much. Coming up, Human Rights Watch accuses Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza as international cause. Calls for a humanitarian ceasefire grow even louder. We're back after this. The situation in Gaza is dire, with Israel hitting hundreds of targets over the past few days, with the death toll there rising to over 19,000, according to Gaza's health ministry. A large portion of the region is displaced and starving. You can see the rush toward aid trucks this weekend, with Human Rights Watch stating that Israel is using starvation as a weapon of war, despite a new aid checkpoint between Israel and Gaza opening last week. Israel is facing growing international condemnation over civilian casualties, with the Pope calling for an end to, quote, terrorism in Gaza and condemning the Israeli military's attack on a Christian church. The French Ministry for Europe and Foreign Affairs condemning Israel's bombing of a residential building that killed one of its staff, and both the UK and German foreign ministers calling for a path towards a, quote, sustainable ceasefire. Israel continues to maintain that its goal is not to hit civilians. Meanwhile, the Israeli government is facing growing backlash after Israeli defense forces shot and killed three Israeli hostages in Gaza, whom they mistook to be a threat. 
That sparked large protests against Netanyahu in Tel Aviv this weekend. We're learning more about what happened from the military, including that the hostages were shirtless and holding up a white flag. My colleague Hallie Jackson spoke with the father of one of the hostages who were killed. I'm going to say this government, you murdered my son twice. You let the Hamas take my son on October 7th, and you killed my son on December, December 14. They cannot serve us. They don't deserve us as a country, as a community. They are not our leaders. They're thinking only on themselves, on their chairs, on their salaries. They are not thinking about the hostages. They are not thinking about us. Today, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin walked into this fraught environment with Israeli officials, navigating the U.S.'s relationship with Israel while also stressing the need for reduced civilian casualties. As The New York Times reports, Austin's message of late has become more blunt. Israel, Mr. Austin recently predicted, could face strategic defeat that would leave the country less secure if it does not do more to protect civilians. We'll have more of that reporting and show you what Secretary Austin said in Israel today after the break. We will continue to stand up for Israel's bedrock right to defend itself. And we will also continue to urge the protection of civilians during conflict and to increase the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. Ongoing instability and insecurity only play into the hands of Hamas. So we must think together about what lies beyond this terrible season of terror and war. That was Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin today in a news conference after meeting with Israeli government officials. And joining me now is Helene Cooper, Pentagon correspondent for The New York Times and an MSNBC political analyst. And Helene, great to see you. Your piece was excellent on uh, on uh, the defense secretary, on Mr. Austin, um, General Austin. Talk a little bit about why he has become more visible in the sort of back and forth between the U.S. and the Israeli government over what they're doing in Gaza. Uh, Hi, Joy. Thanks for having me. It's been really interesting watching Lloyd Austin evolve into this moment. In a lot of ways, I think this is a moment that was sort of made for him. He's uniquely qualified to perform right now. He's a very low-key defense secretary. He doesn't like the limelight. He really took the back seat to General Mark Milley when he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And you didn't hear as much from Austin. But the reality is that General Austin is a 41-year Army veteran. He fought in Afghanistan. He led in Iraq. Uh, he was part of the surge. Uh, the um, He led uh, in the Battle of Thunder Run to, to Baghdad in 2003. He was the head of United States Central Command uh, during the campaign to uh, liberate Iraq and Syria from the Islamic State. So when it comes to fighting in this particular type of battlefield in the Middle East, he knows what he's talking about. And he, what he brings to the table, which is so interesting, is the ability to tell the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, look at you guys, for every one uh, um, Hamas uh, uh, insurgent or one Hamas militant that you're killing, you're creating five more because of how indiscriminate the IDF has been in the bombing campaign 
in in Gaza, and that is the message that he brought uh, to to Israel today. It's something that he warned them about back in October. Like he was there October thirteenth, uh, just six days after. Uh, the Hamas attacks that launched uh, this latest uh, crisis. And he told, he warned them then, be careful. And what the United States, what the Pentagon was trying to get the IDF to do is to do a much more limited type of campaign, a precision precision, uh, aerial campaign that was making very targeted uh, precision airstrikes on specific Hamas targets and then yeah. trying to get them to send in special operations troops, sort of the way the United States did in uh, Iraq and Syria with the Iraqi led uh, troops when they're doing the de-ISIS campaign. But that's a lot. It's harder. It's really hard to 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 fight war like that. And it, it means risking more Israeli soldiers on the ground, as opposed to if you go in not in a big bulk as they did. But in a much more targeted sense, then it's harder and it's riskier to do it. Israel hasn't taken his advice so far, which brings us to the moment that we're at right now, where he came to Israel today just specifically uh, to tell them both that the U.S. and the Pentagon thinks it's time for them, it's past time for them to turn the uh, to a different phase in the war, but also that they're risking what he calls a strategic defeat, because if they are not, they're going to have to at some point live with these people. Uh, and if uh, if they're creating more militants than they're destroying, there's no way that this can end well for Israel. Well, the, the reality is, um, you know, he comes at a time when it doesn't appear that the Israeli government is listening at all. You've seen just an nope. explosion in settler violence and attempting to displace Palestinians in the West Bank. And you just had uh, three Israeli hostages shot dead by the IDF, even though when Mark Regev, uh, the uh, Mr. Netanyahu spokesperson, was on with us, he said they stripped Palestinians and sat them on the ground because they feared they'd have suicide vests on. Well, in this case, the three Israeli hostages took off their shirts and were shirtless and were literally waving a white flag, which suggests that the rules of engagement are and the rules of engagement that are being used against Palestinians are to just shoot first and ask questions later. So I guess the question is, what is the level of U.S. influence over the Netanyahu government at this stage? There's enormous influence. It's just a question of whether President Biden decides he wants to use it. Um, that's the fundamental question. There's no there's no question that the United States has influence over Israel. If President Biden makes the decision that he wants to turn it off, he probably can because we supply Israel with all of their weaponry. It's uh, we back Israel in the in the UN. We're the ones who are you know uh, 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 backing Israel when they're before these UN votes. We're the ones who are sending the Pentagon is sending all of this weaponry. So it's a political question uh, as opposed yeah. to a defensive uh, a defensive one. And I think that's something thing that we have to ask when is president uh, where at what point does president biden decide that he is going he is ready to put more muscle behind the we think you should you started to see some of the daylight between president biden and, and bb netanyahu but at, you know are, are we going to get more daylight and it's the u because the u.s does have influence it's a question of whether or not it decides to use it yeah. And does the sending of Lloyd Austin there, uh, rather as opposed to Kirby or someone else, does it indicate that that turn is being made? Because he is somebody that the Republicans don't like. Lindsey Graham says he has no confidence in him. He's too woke, et cetera. Does sending this guy in indicate a change of uh, strategy uh, in from the White House? It's such an interesting question. I don't 
think so because they're asking uh, they're asking Austin right now to they're still doing you know this is not a question yeah. really of good cop bad cop at this point right. they're asking Austin to sort of reason with them and say this is still the look listen to what we say I have experience in this I know what it's like I fought ISIS yeah. I know what how hard it is uh, to do this and he he's coming to them and saying you know listen to what I'm warning you I'm bringing you warnings at this point right. he's not bringing uh the, this trip was not a, uh, meant for him to be bringing the stick it's still just yeah. a warning face but he does he yeah. is able to to say people who don't take my warnings end up in a bad place look at ukraine yeah. for instance indeed uh helene cooper uh, it's great to have you on thank you very much appreciate you great reporting that is tonight's readout you can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.